Uh, let me pray as we come once again to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you teach us uh, from your word. Uh, we thank you that your word is living and active. We pray that our hearts will be settled and focused uh, as we learn about what you're teaching us about yourself and us this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, who do you think you are? Uh, is a question. Who do you think you are? Uh, could be asked in different ways depending on the tone of voice. Who do you think you are? It's actually the name of a TV series uh, on television that takes viewers on a personal journey into the pasts of popular celebrities. Has, has anybody watched that show at all? Yes, a few, few people. Uh, in the words of the promotional blurb, it says this, each episode reveals the, su su the surprising, extraordinary and often moving stories of their ancestors and helps them unpack their own identity. In recent research done on the topic of identity in literature, it has only been in the last 50 years that the topic has exploded in popularity. And as we live in a culture that is fixated on being true to yourself, why is our sense of identity so important? Where does our identity come from? We're going to explore that question as we look at this text together. Let me begin with a little context of where we are in John's Gospel. In the month of February, the four weeks, we looked in detail at the first 18 verses. Don't worry, we're not going to go that slow through the whole series. We're going to go a bit quicker. And we looked at the biography of Jesus written by a man called the Apostle John, not to get mixed up with a man called John the Baptist, who we have been introduced to in the last few weeks. We, we could just as easily have called John the Baptist John the Witness or John the Testifier because according to verse 7, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, which is another way of saying he came to testify to Jesus. Now having introduced John the Baptist, the gospel now begins to flesh out what this, his testimony is. And to borrow the phrase from a TV ad, the, the passage does a bit of compare the pair. There is a comparison between the identity of John, the testifier, and the identity of the man that John was testifying about, uh, Jesus. The language of testimony is picked up there in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, between the last book in the Old Testament and the first books of the New Testament, there was a period of about 400 years, and then all of a sudden John appears and starts baptising people. Now naturally this attracted the attention of their religious establishment. Normally they would baptise people who were not Jews, Gentiles, as the Bible calls us. But what's this guy doing baptising Jewish people for? So they sent a delegation down from Jerusalem to find out what was going on, to ask him who he was. Who are you, they ask in verse 21. Who are you, they ask him in verse 22. Who do you think you are, baptising people like this? Now at this time in history there was an atmosphere of expectation that a Messiah-like figure, an anointed one, would appear. A political king would come and rescue the Jewish nation and from the hands of their enemies and set up a nation-state like that, like that of King David before them. They ask in chapter 7, verse 42, does not the scripture say that the Christ or the Messiah will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? 
Now, with John appearing on the scene, preaching and baptising some people, some people might have thought that John was the anointed one. So in echoing verse 8, when it says that he was not the light, he says this in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. Or as some translations use, I am not the Christ. Messiah is just the Hebrew language from the Old Testament and Christ is the Greek equivalent from the New Testament. But both terms mean an anointed one. John makes it very clear in verse 20. I am not the Messiah. Well, the delegation is probably thinking, now, well, if he's not the anointed one, well, maybe he is some other figure connected to the Messiah, part of his entourage or something like that. So they asked him in verse 21, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, according to the Old Testament, Elijah had never physically died, but had been taken up into heaven. And in the last book of the Old Testament, God had promised through the prophet Malachi, said these words in chapter 4, 5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So people are expecting Elijah to come. So maybe John was Elijah. Elijah reappeared in the flesh. Are you Elijah, they ask. I am not, John firmly replies. Now you may recall in the other three biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that Jesus makes a connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. But although John the Baptist was a figure similar to Elijah and even the description of his clothing and diet bore remarkable resemblance, even that detail is in the Bible because it's trying to make a connection to Elijah, but he was not Elijah in the flesh. He was a symbol. He was an Elijah-like figure as he preached a message of urgent repentance. But John's testimony about himself is very clear. He is not the Elijah. He is not Elijah in the flesh. Now the delegation starts to narrow down the possibilities at this point. Not the Messiah. Okay, not Elijah. Are you the prophet? They ask in 21. Capital P, prophet. In the fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, there was a promise of a prophet like Moses who would come in the future. This is what it says, chapter 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. So maybe he's a prophet like Moses. Once again, John testifies, and in verse 21, he answered, No. Now, the delegation at this point is probably thinking, well, we can't return to Jerusalem with a series of denials. We've been sent all the way here. We've got to take something back. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. So they invite him. They invite him to identify himself on his own terms. Well, maybe you can tell us who you are. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? It's a question of identity. Who are you? Who do you think you are? The answer comes in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He may not be the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, but he identifies as the voice. No, not the voice of Australia in the popular TV singing competition, but a far more significant voice that Isaiah had predicted 600 years earlier 
In Isaiah chapter 40, the passage that Mark read out for us, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's from the book of Isaiah. And the fascinating thing about the book of Isaiah is that there are 66 chapters. Okay, well, how many books in the Bible are there? How many books? 66 books in the Bible. The first 39 books are the Old Testament, and then book 40 through to book 66 are the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, although soaked with messages of grace throughout, the Old Testament rings with a message of judgment. And so too do the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. A message of judgment sprinkled with messages of hope. Then Isaiah chapter 40 begins with this message, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And in the next 27 chapters of Isaiah, the message of salvation and hope becomes more prominent. A little small picture of the Bible as a whole. It's a great book, the book of Isaiah. And a figure known as the suffering servant of the Lord is revealed that brings a message of hope. Now, John the Baptist in today's passage is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and he's identifying himself as the voice of one calling to prepare people for the one who will fulfil that hope, the one who will bring salvation. And as the New Testament begins with the 40th book of the Bible, the Gospel writers understand that this message of comfort, hope and salvation from sin that Isaiah prophesied about is actually found in Jesus. Although initially speaking of God's covenant people in captivity returning from exile back to geographical Jerusalem, the message of Isaiah is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who comes to bring his people back to God from captivity to sin. Now John the Baptist identifies himself as the one Isaiah spoke about who was preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord Jesus the anointed one who has come to save his people. And as we compare the pair, the identity of Jesus now begins to take centre stage from verse 24 onwards. We found out who John is and now we're finding out who Jesus is. 24 says, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied. But among you stands one who you do not know, He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John answers their questions with pointing to someone superior to himself. And he goes into more detail in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. there's There's a lot in that statement there and a healthy pattern of reading the Bible that many of you have got into over the years is to think about the language of word association. I'll give you 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you. What parts of the Bible do you think about when you hear the the language of lamb? 30 seconds, your time starts now. What do you think of when you hear the word lamb? What parts of the Bible do you think of?
Ten seconds. Okay, did anybody, did anybody think of the lamb provided by God as a sacrifice in exchange for the life of Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis? Did anybody think of that? Okay, do you know what chapter it comes from? No, it's all right. I only know Genesis 22. I only know because I looked it up, so don't worry about that. Perhaps anybody think of the lamb in Exodus, the Passover lamb? Anybody? Yes, okay, me or a few others. Um, the blood was painted on the doorpost to turn aside the judgment of God. What about the daily sacrifices in the temple and twice on Saturdays in Exodus 29? Anybody think of that one? Okay, yep, some of the daily sacrifices twice on Saturdays. We might think of the submissive lamb of Isaiah. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Anybody on Isaiah? Yes, that's a, quite a famous one. What chapter in Isaiah? 53, that's right, Colin Buchanan helps you with that one. Okay, now maybe it was the lamb in the book of Revelation. Did anybody think of the Revelation? Okay, I think some people are putting their hand up for every answer. Must be the Bible scholars amongst us. But even with many allusions and connections to the word lamb, there is no direct equivalent to the phrase lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the Bible. Let me ask you another question. What is the opening line of John's Gospel? In the beginning was the word. Very good. Okay. Now you should be able to memorize the first 18 verses. We've been going through them, but it's good to memorize at least the first sentence. Now there are various streams of thought that flow together to unpack what that expression means. In the beginning was the word. You know, such as language of light and life and the, and the rest of John's gospel unpacks what that means. But in a similar way, there are a combination of images woven together throughout the Bible to help us understand the phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in a nutshell, Jesus is a lamb like no other. Not literally a lamb, but he offers himself up to be sacrificed in death so we who deserve the judgment of death are set free. For the image of a lamb, Jesus appears to be a victim, but he is ultimately a victor. As verse 34 says, he is none other than God's chosen one, the Son of God, and he is victorious over death and offers us hope that all who are united to Jesus by faith will also rise again when we die. And that is how Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. He deals with the problem of sin that separates us from God. He takes it away so it's no longer a barrier between us and God and we get forgiveness instead. And we're going to celebrate that later in the service as we share in the Lord's Supper together. But the question is, as we continue into this passage, is how did John know the identity of Jesus? And he goes on to explain how he knows from verse 30 onwards. This is the one, verse 30, the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now John had already testified in verse 15, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. The whole phrase is a bit of a riddle, isn't it? He who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me. It's a bit confusing. Now, when I used to work as a, as a guide taking high school groups on wilderness camping trips, five days slugging it out with a backpack on our backs, one thing I used to do to help the students pass the time was to get them to think of those great lateral thinking questions. You know, what gets wetter the more it dries? You spend 
A towel, that's right, that, that, that kind of thing. And so I'm glad you said the answer because uh, it's a towel because you would have spent the rest of the sermon thinking, well, what gets wetter the more it dries and being a bit distracted. But it's that kind of lateral thinking puzzle that's almost going on here if we didn't understand it. A man who comes after me surpassed me because he was before me. How does that work? Now we have the opportunity to understand what that means because we have verses 1 to 5. Even though John stood on the stage of history before Jesus, he was Jesus' elder, not by much, only about six months, but he was still Jesus' elder. Jesus surpasses John in importance because he existed, Jesus existed before John was even born. As we know from John chapter 1 to 5, verse 1 to 5, as God the Son, it was through Jesus that all things were made, including John the Baptist including you and me. It was through Jesus that all things were made. Now John didn't tell the delegation from Jerusalem why he was baptising, but now he explains it in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now ultimately the purpose of John baptising people was that God could use the baptism of Jesus to reveal to people from among all the people Jesus was the promised chosen one. There's a lot of people getting baptised. But it was when Jesus got baptised that something happened. And God told John how to identify the chosen one in verse 33. The one who sent me to baptise with the water told me, he said, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Which is what happened in verse 32. We could switch those around in time. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. So John the Baptist could identify who the chosen one was because he saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. And that's why John was so clear that he was not the Messiah. And it's interesting to note that the Spirit remains on Jesus. Now Jesus is given the Spirit without limit. And some in the Old Testament, like King Saul, he experienced the Spirit's presence and power temporarily, but Jesus never displeases his Father. The Spirit rests on Jesus permanently in a very unique kind of way. As we compare the pair, John is limited to baptising people with water. Jesus has no such limitation and he is able to baptise people with the Holy Spirit. And this is in fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies which look forward to the time when God's people would have the Spirit poured out on them. In Ezekiel 36 it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, says the prophet Ezekiel. John washed people in water. But Jesus washes our hearts clean through the Holy Spirit. So as we compared the pair, this passage began with questions about who John is. It now ends with the far more important issue of who Jesus is. John strongly confirms the identity of Jesus by saying in verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, the Son of God. Now this sets the scene for what is to to come next week as the first disciples are, are called to follow Jesus. 
They've identified Jesus and they follow, and we'll unpack that next week. But let me consider a couple of points of application as we think about this. Firstly, when we compare the pair, it isn't John we need to look to, but Jesus to define who we are. John the Baptist was not the Messiah. He knew it. People around us are not the Messiahs either. We don't look to human relationships to ultimately define who we are, to decide the ultimate meaning and purpose of our lives. Human saviors let us down. We let ourselves down. We let other people down. Our children let us down. We let our children down. In my imperfection, I let you down. Perhaps there are some among us who have heard hurtful things said about you and others. Said about you by others. Don't let other people's hurtful words and actions towards you define who you are. People will always let us down. It's our relationship with Jesus who defines who we are. When we understand who Jesus is, then we can understand who we are. And our ultimate security in life, our ultimate meaning and purpose comes from our relationship with Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us is the foundation of our identity our identity, not what others think about us or what other people say or have said about us in the past. Secondly, it's interesting that John the Baptist also understood his identity according to the role that God had sent him to perform, a voice of one calling in the desert, a witness to Jesus. And as God's people, we are also called to testify to Jesus. In some way, like John, we are also the voice. We may not be called to take part in a singing competition on national television, but we are called to be the voice of this generation. As our culture around us speaks about Jesus in, in derogatory and dismissive ways, or if people are not doing that, then they are making Jesus into the, an image that they want him to be, rather than the Jesus of the Bible. As God calls us to make lifelong disciples, he is calling us to be a voice that speaks the word of God into our culture, that speaks and acts in a way that points people to Jesus. That is also part of our identity as well. What is God has called us to do. Now the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon is not the sun. It only reflects the light of the sun. John the Baptist knew he was not the son of God, but he knew he was to reflect the son of God in this world. So who do you think you are? How do we understand who we are? When we understand who Jesus is, we understand who we are and who we are not. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that, that he can do that because he is the Son of God, the Chosen One. Help us to understand that we cannot take away our own sin. Help us to accept uh, that only Jesus can deal with the problem of sin in our lives. And thank you that Jesus did that. 
by paying the ultimate price of giving his life for us on the cross. As we find our identity in you, may we be people who seek to reflect the message of the good news of Jesus into a generation searching for their identity everywhere except in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.